Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We get together every other week and we talk business with some of the smartest women in the ETF industry. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Laura Krigger. Hello, as always. And today we are talking about diversity in the financial industry, a really exciting and timely topic with none other than Bree Williams, Head of Practice Management at State Street Global Advisors. Hi, Bree. Hi, thanks for having me. Pri, you are recognized in this industry as somebody who has done a lot of work on the practice management side in relation to diversity, you know, gender, what, what you guys call gender intelligence. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, everyone talks a, a really good game when it comes to, you know, believing in the power of diversity. Everyone, you know, says they're on it, they are interested in it, but you know, let's really get more granular here and go beyond just this this tagline of diversity is good for business and mm-hmm. talk about what are some of the things that are actually impactful in this business and what are some of the blind spots around this issue in the financial industry specifically? Definitely. I mean, we all agree it's about good for business, but to create the change we all wish to see, we have to move beyond simply talk and understand what are those blind spots that are holding us back. So the way you've opened up this conversation is spot on. You know, we believe we're not stuck and we believe there are blind spots that are specific to the issues of diversity and inclusion for industry and the lack of diversity when we think about our talent pool. That's not new news. And when we start to look at, well, if it's not new news, why hasn't change already been here? Um, The progress that we're making to narrow the gap, it's truly been glacial, which is disappointing. Um, So if you want to, you know, dissect that more so you can get at the heart of the matter to uh, fix what's broken, you have to go beyond the numbers because we believe it's not about a capabilities gap. Um, the numbers vary, of course, among the different career tracks that are available in our industry. Um, and no matter what the career track is, we still see that the storyline is similar across those different opportunities. So before I get into the blind spots, I think it's let's just level set and ground ourselves in a proxy example. So I pulled forward some, some data to take a look at uh, where we are. Mm-hmm. And given the areas my team focuses on specifically, I pulled that from the total financial advisor population in the U.S. So if we take a look at that segment of the population and apply a gender diversity lens, we see here that women represent 15 to 20 percent of the total advisor population. Oof is right. (laughs) About how many women are demographically part of the U.S. population? It's 52 percent. So definitely work to improve there. Sure. Now, when you take a racial diversity lens, and I split this among um, different segments further, we still have a ton of work here and the gap's even bigger. So not surprisingly, uh, we are still largely a white majority in terms of total advisor population, 84.6% of today's advisor population is white. Wow. Now, if you look across that through uh, some of the ethnic representation, they're really tiny numbers. 
Nearly 5.72% are Black, 6.19% are Asian, and only 1.22% are non-white Hispanic. That is depressing. That's <laughs> that's crushingly, crushingly. Uh... But I also think, you know, when you face the facts and, you know, recognize we've been talking about this for decades in our industry and other industries, you know, the time is now to really take action. And we we must rally around that this is not a capabilities issue. There are other factors at work perpetuating the status quo. And, you know, when we can come together to problem solve, um, play in traffic, if you will, we can then rally around what is the collective responsibility and identify what's holding us back and then how we can be in a better position to create that change. So I think it's fair to say, and I want to acknowledge loud and clear, companies are, and most companies are, really committed. They're actively committed to increasing diversity, especially when it comes to promoting women and minorities into senior leadership roles. However, that becomes harder to do when you look at the size, the pool count of the candidates that we have available to us in the industry today among women and minorities. It's very small to begin with. So that leads us to look at the role of bias. Um, And the bias in the workplace is far more insidious than I think we ever realized. And it's not in the ways that we would traditionally think of in terms of bias. Can I walk us through two examples? Yes, please. Okay. So the first one uh, is on word bias. And I pulled word bias forward because it relates to our hiring practices. And I'm going to lean on some research here because that's part of the way uh, my team works, but it's, it's also good to have the facts. So we look to what the work done by social scientists. And that led us to see what was happening from the work, body of work coming out of the University of Waterloo and Duke University. And they had categorized numerous adjectives and verbs that are often found in job postings as either masculine or feminine words. Now, their research found that in job advertisements in traditionally male-dominated fields like ours, as well as fields, say, software programming, they tend to use more masculine words. What's a masculine word that might appear in a job ad? Uh, competitive, dominant would be two good examples. Mm-hmm. And those that type of word choice uh, in a job ad um, you know, can skew interest in job applicants. And then when you, on the flip side, look at words that are in female-dominated fields, you know, a good ex- field example here would be teaching, you, you see less language like competitive and dominant. So if you dig a little bit deeper and confirm those words that are in these job listings, potentially being less appealing to one consumer segment, gender as an example, you're attracting less of that desired audience. Now, furthermore, Harvard Business School's research found that there's an unconscious bias in the way the ads themselves are written. And that can create an additional obstacle, often one that is a perceived obstacle for women. Let me make that very simple. There are many women today that will not raise their hand to apply for a job 
unless they feel they meet almost all of the listed requirements, let's say 90% or more of the things they're looking for in terms of skill set and experience in that job advertisement, if they feel they don't meet that criteria threshold, they're likely to hold back and not apply. Whereas many men tend to have a lower threshold when it comes to how many of the skill set and experience criteria noted in the job advertisement they need to have, let's say 60% or more. Um, So they consider that close enough factor Mm -hmm. as permission to go ahead and apply for the job. Now, if we're not mindful in writing these job ads, then this discrepancy will inadvertently lead to more male candidates applying for a given position. But if I can um, jump in here, Brie, what I'm curious about that, which is, I think, interesting, is this, I mean, because I've heard that many times before, you know, women, we have to check all the boxes. So uh, is this inherently the way we are wired as women, or is this an education we are taught to make sure that we're only good enough if we check 100% of the boxes? So is it... you know, a diversity that has to start really much farther back in the education when we're kids or, you know, how, how realistic is this, this role that the employer plays here on how you draw in terms of writing up the job descriptions, I'm just trying to figure out, do you put fewer boxes? I mean, how do you write a job (laughs) description that attracts to somebody who thinks they only meet a hundred percent? I mean, I'm not quite sure how do you actually apply this year? It's a really good question and a thoughtful one at that. Um, The answer is a bit multifaceted. And you actually had some of the answers in the way you proposed the inquiry. So first and foremost, yes. The way we engage, raise our youth, men and women, those factors that influence and shape someone's confidence or tolerance for risk um, are all factors in one's ability to perceive can I do this? Or what do I need to take this on? So unfortunately, there's still studies today that show young girls, you know, in grade school still being influenced by the way they're praised um, on a score on a task. So we start to take away this environment of it's not safe to fail publicly. But you and I both know that experiential learning is part of growth. So the you have to nurture that it's not about striving for perfection because that becomes then the enemy of the good. It's about learning from your errors along the way, finding safe ways to fail, if you will, in a public environment, but in a more nurturing manner that encourages you to pick yourself back up and try, try again. So, you know, a good way to put that into context um, is if let's go to the playground. Mm -hmm. There's a young boy and a young girl And they're both playing on the slide. Um, The girl goes down and she wipes out. Um, Our natural instinct is to immediately go over to her, coddle her, soothe her, you know, maybe not play so rough next time. That caution starts to impact how she'll go down that slide the next time. Whereas for the boy, we're likely to just dust him off, send him back on his way and, you know, you're fine, move on. It's not malicious. It's unconscious in some of the conditioning and cultural surroundings around the way we've treated the different sexes. So better awareness can help us here in terms of improving the way individuals look at 
growing and learning and demonstrating that more publicly. Mm -hmm. In the workplace, you know, let's grow grow up in our example, um, criticism can often be harsher when someone fails. I mean, you can probably list um, numerous headlines where if you have a female leader and she falls down publicly, um, the headline isn't as nice. Right. Uh, it is for the male leader. And why is that? Uh, you know, sometimes you specifically see companies hiring female leaders when they are in trouble mm -hmm. so that those women can take the fall for, uh, you know, I think there's actually even a name for that phenomenon, right? Exactly. And again, just to underscore, this is not about, you know, pitting men and women against each other. We have to work together to rise above um, these role charters that have create, been created in our culture. And we can do better by being more aware and then trying to apply that level of neutrality. Mm -hmm. When it comes to things like ads and um, a job description to pick up on your, your other aspect of the inquiry, we can use tools and resources uh, like software, which can help us course correct and strip out um, words that can be gender leaning um, and make sure that we're trying to put forward something as neutral as possible to attract a diverse slate of candidate interests. Um, so using resources like that can help us with the writing of the ads um, and improve that applicant pool that we really need to see grow beyond the traditional grouping of candidates that we typically attract. So I want to pick up on something you said earlier about uh, not having a diverse enough pool of talent applying for uh, these jobs. And and um, mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of want to push back up on that a little bit because, okay. you know, there's, um, there you're I'm not that the research is wrong. That's not what I mean. But I'm sure you saw the headline uh, a few days ago that went up about the Wells Fargo CEO um, claiming that quote, there was a limited pool of black talent to recruit from uh, at his company. And uh, a lot of the pushback to those comments were, well, yes, but maybe it's the fact that systematically at your company, you are not supporting the black employees that you have coming into um, into the company. There's not enough resources. They're, uh, you know, subtly and not so subtly uh, dissuaded from climbing up the ladder. Uh, they're kept in associate roles and then uh, they are pushed out, um, you know, the moment that it gets, um, you know, too inconvenient to have them. They're basically, uh, you're only at attracting diverse candidates so that you can check off a, a you know, a, a diverse candidates uh, mark on your, on your checklist. Um, and and that seems to be as much a problem as you know hiring uh, the hiring pool in the first place, right? It's it's keeping and retaining the talent that you do have, um, and making sure they feel supported. So, um, to what extent are the diversity measures that are going on in the financial industry um, focusing not just on uh, attracting talent, but fostering and mentoring and supporting the talent that they do? inevitably attract. So I couldn't agree more with the way you've entered into this aspect of the conversation. Um, biases it, are stubborn. That's a fact. Uh, and we do need good faith training efforts in corporate America, but those on their own are insufficient. 
So what needs to happen, because targets are helpful, whether they're gender targets, racial targets, or, or business targets, uh, but what gets measured truly matters. And in order for a company that's going to implement any aspect of change, they have to actively manage that change so they can course correct in real time and not lose pace. That moves a metric beyond just a target against I need 50% women by XYZ year, or we need to um, double the size of our recruitment and hiring pool in racial diversity by 30% by XYZ year. It, it has to be structural. And then furthermore, when you're talking about biases, because accountability goes both ways, there's also aspects here of simply how to be a better human being. So <laughs> companies have to be established when they think about what their inclusion strategy is. So it outlines the importance of how diversity and inclusion play a role in that company's long-term goals. Then they're in a position to set what are appropriate measurable diversity goals. So can they hold their feet to the, to the fire accordingly and actively track that progress? I'm sure you've also seen the headlines um, and many with a flourish where companies are now uh, publicly um, putting forward their asset stewardship reports to show the transparency of Hey, we're not perfect yet, but we're we're trying here. These are our objectives. This is our, you know, five point plan, and this is our timeline, and this is what we're going to do to uh, stay honest. So mm -hmm. back to the the central core of the argument: the hiring process being neutral. I do think that there are some bright spots in re the recruitment area for our industry. Um, we are taking efforts to expose the opportunities that are available to a more diverse range of individuals when they think about careers and financial services, specifically the ETF ecosystem. But that requires all of us to be part of the solution and get involved. Because if you're not in a position to expose stories, um, talk about skill sets, and also, you know, when you think about the development process, get the training that you need to develop skills and get that experience so you can grow in that direction or grow in this area, then we're not going to be successful in how we develop this rising young talent. So recruitment is just part of the journey, um, which I think we've made some headway, but we've got a long way to go. Um, but retention and development initiatives are about policies and protocols, and those have to be in place so you think more comprehensively about how you nurture talent through the pipeline in that company and then as an industry more broadly, how we keep that bright talent and not dissuade them when um, they, a career milestone comes and they're passed up for promotion. Was it because of bias or was it truly because of performance? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, the the thing here too is that you know diversity is has to be a everyone effort. Mm -hmm. It's not just on the employer to open the opportunities, but is on the the candidate to really push forward and, and take those chances. You know, to go back mm -hmm. to you have to check a hundred percent of the box. I mean, my first job in a newsroom, I applied for the same job three times in a row because they had mm -hmm. never had a foreign woman take that job, and they didn't want to give it to me. And uh, they finally said, is the only way to get rid of you to give you this job? I'm like, yes, because I'm going to keep coming back. So you have to kind of sometimes push that envelope and show them that diversity can be good. Yes. Um, but so to talk specifically about State Street's efforts, I mean, you guys 
in launched she way ahead of anybody else mm -hmm. and, and that fearless girl which is an icon worldwide now and and, and that whole thing mm -hmm. now the concept here was boardroom workplace composition as being a meaningful metric of what success and diversity looks like now how is that really representative of the benefits of diversity mm -hmm. tell me how this goes beyond just a matter of headcount here a percentage count how does this really show the impact of diversity has the positive impact uh, on a company sure uh, this comes back to really the she economy so I think we all agree equality for women is critical. And we're also very clear on the business case and the impacts of success are wide reaching. So let's put a number to that as a starting point. Women have an impact on the economy. They have an impact on financial markets and advancing women's equality could boost the global GDP by 31% or $28 trillion by 2025. Now, 2025 is not that far away, but we're not on path, unfortunately, to realize that outcome because things are not equal. So the gap that we have economically, an economic gender gap, let's call it, it's being closed at a snail's pace. So if we really gain that out, we're looking at more like 200 plus years. We don't have that kind of time. The world is far too competitive to be operating in an echo chamber. Um, you have to have this diversity of thought and the business case supports what diversity of thought. And that's not just gender, that's across um, race, sexual orientation, age, and even skill sets. So you have individuals pushing and pulling um, each of us, whether we're sitting on a board or, or sitting on a team in our workplace. Uh, to really innovate and break through because if everyone's in agreement with just what the team leader is saying, then we're missing opportunities to see upside potential and downside risks. So essentially, if we want to make the change possible, then we have to be the change agents, which is not easy work. Um, to several of the things that you all have brought forward here, it does require us to use the power of our voice. And, and we also have to make sure that we're following through. So we have to stick to our guns. We have to be pushy. Uh, and I think the best recent example uh, that jumps to mind is the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was such a warrior and in many ways our original fearless girl. Um, for many of us, including myself, she was that robed superhero. Um, she lived quite the remarkable life. Um, there's so many quotes, it's hard to choose just one. But for a conversation today, the one that I think is most poignant, for the things that you care about, fight for them, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. I think that really underscores the point of our effort when you think about being authentic, being a leader, and being living proof, which she was as the notorious RBG, that women in leadership roles, when they are in those positions, we as a company, as a team, as American, when we think about our performance economically, we perform better. And you can look to numerous bodies of data that uphold our long-held belief as a company that diversity of thinking and ideas, whether it's senior leaders, right down to the front line of a company's workforce. Those are all key drivers of success. And that's an idea that we've been committed to for a very long time. And you saw us bring it to light 
with the Fearless Girl campaign for more than um, now three years. And we've seen some great uh, traction take hold. It's been three years, which is not a lot of time, um, but we've seen the campaign do good as it relates to increasing gender diversity in the boardroom. We can look to the number of companies that are a part of the Russell 3000 um, that did not have a woman on their board. That's dropped from 25% to just about 10%. We also can now see that every company in the S&P 500 now has at least one woman on the board. Um, we've begun to see public recognition for that about Fearless Girl and what the campaign represents. Uh, taking this issue mainstream uh, disrupted the diversity conversation productively. And when we look a little more closely at the conversations in the boardroom, those conversations have almost completely changed. But let me just stop here for a moment because I'd love to hear from the two of you on what you see in Fearless Girl and more importantly, in what your opinion is, what do you think she's taught us over the last three years? Uh, well, I mean, I'm raising two girls, so I have two teenage girls. And um, so I love just the idea, first of all, that she's a girl. She's not a full grown woman taking on the world. She's a girl. I love the idea that this starts early. Mm -hmm. It's all about a whole new upbringing, a whole new education concept to teach these girls that they can do it. If they set their mind to it, they can do it and uh, have the same opportunity. So I think it's very empowering message for, for the up and coming generations. Yeah. I'd, I'd say I kind of piggyback off of uh, what Cynthia said. Uh, I think it's been a very clever campaign. And I, I, I remember seeing uh, the fearless girl staring down the, the bull in, um, uh, in New York City, the last time I went and uh, getting a bit of an emotional, like, you know, mm -hmm. it was it was an emotional uh, response seeing that it was just a very clever, um, you know, campaign there. And I, I think that um, it really does hinge on the youthfulness of fearless girl rather than fearless woman. Um, in some ways, though, uh, it, it does make it easier to to deal because to, to swallow because she's a girl and not a woman, right? It's so it's, it's harder to support women in the workplace. It's easier to support our young girls. Um, and, and so if there was a downside to it, I would say maybe that would be, um, my takeaway, but it's just a really inspiring, like you said, um, there've been some, some great, uh, things that have come out of the campaign, um, in terms of increasing uh, gender diversity in uh, the boardroom and you know, across the Russell 3000 and, and S&P. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, are you planning on, on taking um, the same sort of steps for racial diversity that you took for gender diversity? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of conversation uh, over the past year about uh, the the failures on a structural level to support um, racial diversity in our and racial equity in our workplaces uh, and beyond, um, you know, is this on the docket? You know, are you are you going to be doing a similar sort of campaign for that? Uh, yes. So this year, you may have seen some of the news and headlines about taking steps to address inequality and racism, not only in our own organization and in the communities that we're a part of, but through our asset stewardship program, because we all clearly have a lot more work to do here. 
and we have put forward uh, new goals. Um, we issued a, a 10 action step memo that came out from our global chief investment officer, Rick Lakai, and put ourselves you know, out there publicly with what our objectives are to changing the status quo within our own company around, along racial and diverse lines. Now, it's certainly been a focus for our company for a while. So how this is more, how accelerating progress against our diversity goals um, with an emphasis on increasing representation as well as working harder on development of this rising talent and advancement specific to black and Latinx employees. So we also went one step further and issued a call to action more broadly to the companies that uh, we work with, much like we saw us do with Fearless Girl and issuing that request to company board chairs. So we've expanded our long-standing long focus on diversity to include more disclosure in five key areas. You know, how diversity fits into those companies' overall strategies, what are their relevant goals uh, as a firm in working towards achieving those um, change, and what is the current diversity of their workforce today? Can they be more transparent about that, not just at the board of director level, but across the organization? Um, working with them uh, and also them sharing what their efforts are to increase diversity, um, not in the, only in the organization, but at the board of director level. And then what's their board's process for oversight of these issues? Um, change is hard. And as always, we want to work hand in hand with these companies, which is in keeping with our asset stewardships protocol. So we invite companies to join us. And much like we did with our campaign specific to increasing gender diversity, uh, we will continue to use our voice and our vote to help move progress along. That's wonderful. Well, Bree, we're going to have to leave it there. I think we could probably keep going for another three hours. Um, it's been a great conversation, a really fascinating one. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure. And I hope to speak with you both again. Same here. So for more on this topic or any ETF topic or to catch up on past episodes, please visit us at ETF.com. And for more information about how to get involved in women in ETFs, please visit womeninetfs.com. It's all one word. You can write to us with your questions, comments, thoughts, your own stories about and, and feelings about the fearless girl at ETF Working Lunch, again, all one word, at etf.com. On behalf of myself, Cynthia Murphy, and the rest of the etf.com team, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next episode.